Hey, hey. thanks so much for uh, joining me. I'm here sitting with uh, Matt Wynn, and uh, this is the third podcast, so we were just going through the details of the uh, how, do, how the microphone works, which I'm still learning, and how the computer works, which I'm still learning, and how I can later uh, filter out the sound of that background noise, if you can hear that fan mm-hmm. running over in the corner. <laughs> You're not messing around, are you? No, I'm not. I, I, uh, I'm trying to learn what's going on. So Audacity has this amazing... <laughs> uh, filtering software that can pull out uh, all of the background noise. That's fantastic. Cool. Yeah. So, hey, I'm so thankful that you were uh, willing to meet with me. Uh, I follow you on Twitter, and you tweet, you post all these things. (laughs) No, I think it's fantastic. If you're not following Matt, you want to plug your your Twitter handle? I'm just Matt Wynn. That's me. And... Uh, on the uh, on your personal homepage, which I had pulled up on my iPad, uh, it introduces you as a the uh, or I'll just let you introduce yourself. Uh, I'm a, a data reporter over at the World Herald. Um, that's kind of my shtick, trying to dig through public records and public data to find stories and keep people honest. Yeah, uh, MattWin.net is your homepage. Yeah. Uh, it says, I write stories that uncover problems, advocate for the open web, and build apps that let people make the news their own. And then there's a link. It's an awesome homepage with a link immediately to a grid of, like, these nine projects, uh, only three of which I'm sort of familiar with. So I was going to ask you about those three specifically. Uh, but actually, this morning, we, my, my wife and I got into a thing, and I wanted to ask you, because you're a purveyor of words. You, you know how English works, yeah? Vaguely. Sure. Vaguely. <laughs> Is this a grammar question? Cause that's not. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think so. So we were watching that, she's watching this cop show, and what they kept saying is they kept saying, um, the alleged suspect. The alleged suspect this. And I was like, wait, isn't that redundant? <laughs> like, I understand being the alleged criminal, right? But I don't understand being the alleged suspect. Well, I guess if you've heard through the grapevine that he's the suspect, but you don't know that he's the suspect, then it would be alleged. But if the cops are saying it, that doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Right? Okay. So if it's a crime show that's reporting, what as the cops are walking around... I think you're onto something. <laughs> the police are standing there talking to someone. That is a suspect, not an alleged suspect. Is that right? Because I'm, I'm hoping that I can go back to my wife and tell her I was right. I'm pretty sure that's a suspect. I'm no expert here, but it seems like... To allege something is to say, I don't know if this is true, but... And if you're the cops and you're talking to a guy and you think he did it, he's the suspect. That's just me. Exactly. That's what I would say. Right. Alleged criminal, that makes sense. They have to prove it in a court of right. law. He alleged allegedly suspect, did this. Does not make sense. All right. I'm with redundant. You. So right. moved. <laughs> Excellent. Second. All those in favor, say aye. So uh, of the uh, of the three MattWin.net projects that I'm aware of, <laughs> Be very careful with setting down the I'm coffee. I'm real sorry. <laughs> I just hold it. Uh, one of the, no, you can t- you can set it down. It's totally fine. Um, one of them is the Omaha Crime Report. So yeah. if people haven't seen the Omaha Crime Report, they need to check that out. Should they go to mattwin.net or another URL? No, or? I would just go to omahacrimereport.com. Or honestly, at this point, I think if you just Google Omaha Crime, you'll you'll land there pretty quick. It is pretty cool. It's a we get a direct feed. I mean, we worked with the Omaha Police Department for months to get access to this but every day at like three in the morning they they put on all the reports from the previous day and so practically what happens is they my tenuous understanding is they have a day with a bunch of crime they spend the next day inputting all of that crime from paper reports you know into a database of some sort actually into a mainframe that i just learned i believe was created by ibm in the 1970s really that is how sorry the infrastructure of our 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 Government tech in Omaha is. I thought they all had laptops in the cruisers. I, think, I mean, that's what I'm puzzled by. I, hopefully someone tells me how this actually works. I know they've got laptops in the cruisers, but I also know they still fill out paper reports. And I also know that when I talk to people who tell me how things work, they all re- reference this mainframe that crunches their, their crime stats. So wow. I don't know how it all fits together. It sounds a little rope dope to me, but that's just me. Huh. Um, and, and we get this file at 3 a.m. every day that's, at that point, you know, 36 hours old crime or something like that. But we're able to crunch through all of that and, you know, stick it on a map, kind of find context in the area, that sort of thing. It's, it's really it's really cool. It's one of my favorite projects that we've worked on. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking at it here on my iPad, and you can zoom around. It's a dynamic map, and you can move around the uh, the map in whatever neighborhood I live in or work in. I can even sign up for alerts, mm-hmm. right? 
And so if I sign up for alerts, does that mean at three in the morning it emails me or how does it No, how does I think it I've got, we get that stuff at three. There are enough records that we have to crunch through it for an hour or two. So it's not actually ready to go until five. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Uh, well, it's doing a lot of context. It's running a lot of like weekly things, looking at trends. It's doing, it's doing a lot of stuff under the hood. Um, and honestly, I could probably be smarter about it. I mean, the way I've got the cron set up is, uh, trying to guess when things like it could be a lot better let's just put it that way um uh, but you know we try to give the context of the crime those alerts i think they fire off at nine eight or nine or something like that um and i've got one it's just my address and then i say look i only care about anything within about a block or two and so if there's ever a crime within a block or two of my house i know about it as soon as i can yeah the next morning yeah yeah is it email or how does it it's an email. Tweet me or we had a I, we could put in a Twitter hook. That's not that yeah. idea. We had a text message hook at the beginning, but then I decided that was a exercise in futility, uh, especially because a lot of people. I'm surprised. I, you know, I I do a block or two. I say, look, I do not care about anything, even marginally far away. Yeah, I just want to know about my neighbors. And I thought that's how most people would use it, but I'm shocked how many people set that just to the widest radius they can think of. A mile, a mile and a half. And and so they get an email every morning with just dozens of crimes. So as you can imagine, on a text message, that would not work very well. That's a bad yeah. idea. <laughs> so I've got about uh, – so we have like 400 members of a club that I'm involved in. We, we use Amazon SNS to push out mass uh, text messages to people. Cool. But I've only got like 25, 30 people that are actually active on that. And do, do you have hundreds or thousands of people on – Thousands. We're at, I want to say, 3,500 subscribers. Subscribers. Yeah. Oh, wow. So they don't all get something every day, obviously. I think a couple hundred go out, you know, 700, 800 go out every day. But they're obviously different people every day. It's it's all depending on where the crime is. Yeah, yeah. And I live in Sarpy County, so my house is off the the (laughs) map, (laughs) right? So (laughs) I guess I would have to talk to Sarpy County folks. Well, we're we're actually working on that. Sarpy County... Our whole situation with Douglas and Sarpy County right next to each other is super weird to me, by the way. I feel like they should just be one. But Sarpy County, in some ways, is more advanced than Douglas County. And one of the ways is with this crime mapping. I think the Douglas County Sheriff just got on board with it, even mapping their crimes, even acknowledging that they have a geo data set of all their crime. Sarpy County's been doing that for years, I believe. I mean, I've been here almost five years now, and I'm pretty sure Sarpy County has had that up the entire time. One of our I mean, it's on our list. We haven't actually taken any steps yet, but one of our plans is to hook into that data as well and use it to say what's going on in SARPY. I'm going to knock on wood. Sorry, microphone. But we, I, I think we can make that happen. I'm excited to see if that, you know, that's what needs to be done. There's no reason that we have this arbitrary line between Douglas and SARPY County right. on, on our app. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So That's fantastic. So is the Omaha World Herald... Funding that, the or how do you? It's a World Herald project. Oh, I good. Mean, that's done okay. uh, through work. That's uh, you know another. In fact, just yesterday we're doing a story about gun thefts, and so you know part of my pitch for that project was, look, this is a service, this is a website, this is an alert system, all that sort of stuff. Also, we're reporters. We should probably just know this. We should probably have this data set that we can use to find out things like how many guns are stolen in a given year. Turns out the answer is around three hundred. And it's pretty much every year, around 300 guns. The city of Omaha. In the city of Omaha. Um, Wow. And, you know, to the police's credit, the data we get from them is fantastic. We can see the make and model of every single gun that was stolen. It's it's free text, so it's a little wanky. Yeah. Um, But, you know, looking yesterday, I get the impression that 22s are particularly popular. I don't know if that's just because it's a crime of opportunity, there are more 22s, or if people are seeking out 22s. But, you know, that's something that I can even wonder about that I couldn't have wondered about before we had this this site up and running. Yeah. How the data works, though, is that you cannot tie those gun thefts back to the, the retailer, right? Back to the where they were purchased or where they were sold. So, like, if I was if I was worried about uh, uh, Strawman sales, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm... I, I, I don't know how deep we want to get into guns or Let's not. Get it deep into guns. Let's okay. do it. It's Friday. <laughs> so, so I'm one of the few gun owners I know who is for more, uh, who is frustrated by the lack of open dialogue about guns, right? So, uh, 
if and I, I see two worlds, right? I see hobbyists like me who go to competition shooting events and uh, really enjoy that hobby and aren't hurting anyone, and their guns have never hurt anyone, and they're members of the NRA in my case because like you have to be to to go and shoot. It's mandatory membership. But then I look at like the NRA's politics about all of the the millions of people who are suffering from like inner city gun violence, and I'm really frustrated by. Uh, the, the politics of, for instance, the NRA, my understanding is that the, the laws are constructed through that lobbying power that they have in such a way that it's really hard to fight, uh, things like, um, straw man purchases of guns. Like if I'm going to sell them on the street for you know, some markup to criminals who can't get them at Cabela's, right? Or at other retailers. Um, that that's illegal, but I can't be caught if the data for what serial numbers were sold to who on what days, et cetera, is scrubbed after like 30 days. I, I think how it works right now, it, I don't know if you know this or not, and I've, I didn't prepare for any of this, yes, well. <laughs> but isn't it, isn't it the case that the, so, so back to the data that you do have, you have 300 guns a year are stolen. Mm-hmm. Are the serial numbers of those guns known? It, the data that we have is solely property that is stolen, damaged, seized in the course of police activity. And so it's a police database. And so serial number is known to the extent that the serial number of your stolen computer is known. If a person knows it, if a person happens to have tracked that, if they're able to report that to the police, if the police accurately type it into the system... Then we have the serial number. So, yeah, I guess we do have that. But but I think to get where you're talking about, right, now tell me if I'm wrong, we would need a, a second piece, which is somebody, the ATF, knows where that serial number was purchased, right? Do they? I don't know. I, I think so. I don't know. And I guess more more straight to your point, there's a weird uh conflation of laws around the data that the ATF collects, which they collect a lot of data, and the data the ATF can give us, which is zero. There's actually a law that was passed that says they can't give us the tracking data that they they do have, that they do collect, that we are paying government to put together and maintain, and yet it's not available to us as the public. Which, to me, is, you know, anytime I hear about something like that, it makes my blood boil. There is a government activity that we are paying for, supporting, we are behind, we think it has a purpose in life, and yet we draw the line at making it public, at us taxpayers actually knowing how that works. That's not how That's not how this should happen. Yeah. That's not how a society should be run, in my humble opinion. I, I think most people, not all people, because I know people who will disagree with this, but I think most people think that most people who do not have a, a criminal background um, – uh, possibly mental health issues, possibly, you know, other factors that they're, that most people should be able to purchase firearms. Um, I think most people would agree that most serial, uh, violent offenders who've come out of prison three times should not be allowed to buy a, another pistol when they have a history of like violence with firearms. And so given that most people agree on those two points, not everyone, I know people that don't agree on the second point. They think that if they're out of jail, they've now paid their debt to society and they can now buy another pistol, even though they've whatever with their previous pistols. Um, but my understanding of the, the, the situation with the, the ATF trying to crack down on people who buy guns legally and then hand them to criminals intentionally for a profit that that kind of straw man purchasing, that the enforcement of uh, being able to stop that is is very uh, hampered by the pressures that have been brought by the lobbyists um, to make sure that uh, everyone has the God-given American right to own unlimited, infinite firearms. Um, that may or may not be accurate. I may be wrong, and if someone wants to walk me through this that has more information that'd be great because i didn't i didn't prepare for this at all but um it it's 
it seems to me that if we want to be able to stop a guy that wants to sell a hundred guns to, you know, gangbangers in Chicago from buying those guns right here in Omaha, that what we have to have is we have to have a free flow of information, at least to the ATF, maybe not to the citizenry, but we need to have at least the ATF totally empowered to see that, hey, that Jay Hanna schmuck is out there buying 300 pistols yesterday. And he bought 300 pistols two months ago. How is that? That Those are not for personal use. He's not, <laughs> he's not hunting deer with 2,000 pistols this year. And and this data set exists. I mean, it's not like, granted, neither of us knows. I, I, I certainly don't know what I'm talking about. I get the impression you're kind of feeling around, although at a higher level than myself. But that we're talking about a data set that clearly exists. When you go to purchase a pistol... You are having a background check performed. They're mm-hmm. running your name. There is a record created at that point saying, on this date, Cabela's ran your name. Yep. I think those records are destroyed, though, by law. Or, or at least not I, I allowed to be distributed. Or not allowed to be shared between agencies, which seems like a, you know, like this is back to the frustration I was talking about earlier, that this stuff is being created and let's use it to do the best we can. Let's not get hung up on... You know the politics of it all. Yeah, and so we'll we'll have to regroup when we have more information, and people can. Well, I think we're good. We'll just keep can. making it up as we go. We'll just speculate. <laughs> this is this podcast. Jay Hanna speculates wildly with random <laughs> other folks that enjoy <laughs> speculation. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> back to the data that you do have. So you do know. Wait. What was the law that was passed that you, you do know the serial number if the serial number was on file? So, like, the, the guns that I own, I have all the serial numbers. So, if they're stolen. And they're backed up and they're in the cloud. So, even if all my computers are destroyed, the Dropbox.com still has my <laughs> all my serial numbers of my guns, right? So, if my gun safes are stolen, I can go and say, hey, here's all of the make model right. numbers. I didn't write down all the years and where I bought them or anything. But um, so, if my gun is stolen yesterday and that and i do have that data and they type it in the report correctly does that mean in 48 hours from this neighborhood you have that data i will have the serial number of okay and whatever they type in as a description of your gun which yeah. generally is make and model but it's you know again it's free text sometimes it's a dot two two sometimes it's just a two two you know so does that go to the pawn shops locally like do the pawn shops have that information know. and they i can... don't know that's a good question i don't know what's done with that i mean again my my belief is that it's treated no different from any other property that is stolen, destroyed, or seized in the course of a crime. And so I, I think they just track it to track it, maybe for insurance purposes. You know, they, they have an approximate value, which, by the way, that's super fun to look at. Your 2007 Dell computer that's worth $1,200, no, you're just making that up. Am <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I... Uh, the the person I pay to prepare my taxes is always telling me that my little business that uh, you know does almost nothing uh, <laughs> is, is amortizing that this computer behind me that I bought four years ago and you know all this amazing tax complexity that I don't understand. I'm like okay, <laughs> you know whatever you, you tell me where to sign and I'll just sign it and make the IRS happy and I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Um, another one of your projects on matwin.net, and we, I don't know how much time you have this morning, so I'm going to keep going until uh, you yeah, make sure. me stop. Um, another one was the public pay, uh, yeah. portal. Yeah. Um, is there a direct URL for that one or? Uh, that's going to be dataomaha.com slash salaries. So do you want to describe what that is? Or yeah. Or want uh, me to I, butcher it? Or? You know, I, <laughs> I, I'd be curious to hear your own description too, but my take on it is you know i am a journalist that's what i went to school for i wanted to be bob woodward i took a wrong turn and landed up in data land um but i honestly believe that you know data journalism and, and where we are with journalism online and stuff has given us these brand new tools to to do what we've always done we have always done stories about you know the city council today approved a two percent pay raise across the board and it's boring as sin but we we do it because it's a public service you know we're writing for taxpayers to keep government open and transparent, and that's kind of our broader calling, right? Um, to me, this is just kind of the evolution of that. We previously wrote that story about the city council's 2% pay raise and maybe Joe Blow, who's getting a 3.5% because he just got promoted. We did that because it was the right thing to do and because, frankly, in the newspaper, you've got you know six column inches is what they're called to write your story. So we don't have time to say, 
and here's the other 35,000 salaries and how they were affected by this. Now, we do have the ability to do that. We have the ability to get the entire database and, and, and say, this is meaningful, this is important, and publish the thing. Uh, and this is kind of the result of that. It shows, I think we've got about a dozen governments, local governments on here now. Let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 15 governments. Uh, some of these are bizarre, you know, MAPA. The metropolitan, I don't even know what they are or what they do, but they coordinate something. So the uh, ones people might be familiar with are like by county. Or are these? No, these aren't counties. Yes. Yeah, so uh, some Gretna, of them are Papillion, the Bellevue. counties. I think we've got Douglas County, Lancaster County, Sarpy County, Springfield, Omaha, you know, the cities, OPPD, MUD. So, so for Douglas County, if I click on Douglas County here, and we're mm-hmm. staring at it on my iPad here, <laughs> what, what I can see here is I can see the top pay, so like the highest paid of person that works directly for Douglas County itself. Exactly. Yeah? And then the median pay, and I can touch these and I can see all of their names because these mm-hmm. are all public payrolls mm-hmm. on tax dollars. Um, and I think there's trends over time and graphs and things. Is that? Or? We don't. Uh, so we just started this. This is actually something we're wrestling with right now. We started this last it launched almost a month or a year ago today. Uh, it would have been at some point in February. And so we only have the one year. Now we're at the point where I think just yesterday I put out the requests. Uh, actually, Cody Winchester, who's a genius, wrote a script that automatically sent out these requests to all of the PIOs around the, the area saying, hey, we're after salaries again. So we're a couple weeks away from having multiple years of, of data to, to lay out there. Uh, for the record, point, the, we'll have trends. the heavy breathing in the background is not me. The, uh, <laughs> another one of our, <laughs> another one of our coworkers <laughs> has arrived with with Arya, the famous uh, the famous heavily panting dog. The, so, what does it mean when name withheld? So, like when I touch, yeah. what what does that mean? So, one of the problems you run into with this is people, and I'm speaking for myself on a lot of this stuff, uh, but people take a some people get this. They can get behind kind of the the big J journalism, you know, you're just keeping an eye on public payrolls and all of this should be public and, and names are part of that. Uh, a lot of people take – I mean, we're Nebraskans. We're modest. We don't really necessarily want this stuff out there. If I'm a – I don't know, the, the guy who turns the rotors in the sewer every day and I've been doing that for 20 years, I, I don't necessarily want people to have access to that and I'll take offense to it. And so – and I, you know, we hear from those people. And even though I can make the, the legal argument and the journalistic argument that, look, you're a public employee, your name can be out there, I also happen to have a, a feeling somewhere. And they, you know, I, I can hear that argument that, look, why are you, why are you busting me out? I understand that it's taxpayer dollars to say the person doing my job makes this much money. But why do you need to attach my name to that? That seems prurient. That seems like it doesn't serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we did to kind of walk that line, and I don't know if this is the perfect solution. I think the perfect solution might be just to have them all out there. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we did is we said, okay, let's only include people who make above the state household median income, which is something like 50, 55,000. Um, so if you make less than that, what we do is we, we block your name like that. We mask it on the front end. Uh, we've got that name on the back end. So, you know, for reporting purposes, if Frank Jones is charged with some sort of crime or wins an award or something, we have a little bit more context about that person. Um, Can that be switched just with their title? Like, if they like, I, under, I understand what you're saying, but maybe having their title there oh, would actually be, show up here. Yeah, that's yeah, a good idea. Would be useful. Yeah. So, like, if I'm, well, like in the, in in the military, it's easy, right? Because everybody is <laughs> is exactly one thing, and it has a known pay grade and all that. Um, but huh, yeah, cool. And what's interesting cool, on here, I I think, with some governments more so than others, like the city of Omaha is fantastic about getting us really detailed stuff. And what I think is super cool about that is you can look at you know we make a little pie chart of everybody's where their pay came from, and you can actually look at this and understand like just how complex the payrolls are of our city government. You know, they've got sick annual leave, they've got uniform pay, they've got specialty pay, they've got, if you know a second language, then you use it on the job, there's extra pay you get for that. I mean, 
there's some heavy-duty stuff going on there that I don't think most citizens are aware of. How every time we hear about these contracts, and they're always there's always a certain segment of the population that really cares about these public contracts, but I don't think they and they always make fun of. Well, why is this a 300-page document or a 200-page document? Well, because it gets really detailed in there, really, really, really detailed about where you can be assigned and and what kind of specialty page there are and exactly how the sick annual leave thing works and when you can cash in your vacation. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there. Yeah. So so you said this is one of the newer sites that you've been working on, mm-hmm. is this the salaries, Gretna? So the, or sorry, uh, dataomaha.com slash salaries. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's all kinds of neat stuff in there. So are you thinking about breaking that down into the, the metadata of why they're paid that much? Is that, is that what we you're do saying? stories? I mean, generally yeah. what happens is we get the, we get the data and we do an update and then we take that as an opportunity to just kind of do a story about it. I mean, save Omaha as the example. I did a story about just their, I think it was their sick, sick annual leave arrangement and how that works out. Um, you know, because some of these amounts were, Higher, you know, some people's payout from one thing would be like seventy thousand dollars, and that raises eyebrows. And we have to do a story about it's not just pushing that here and saying go with God is not is not getting it done. We have to try and answer the question of why did that just happen? How does that work? I wanted to ask you about your journalism career in general because, like, I have a cousin who's a sports editor. Yeah. So I kind of understand his rhythm of his week. You know, like his day to day kind of. mission right is to cover the sports that just happened yesterday and he's got you know all of 45 minutes to get him into the <laughs> into the the paper in his case or um does do you have like 10 stories that you're constantly chasing as fast as you can and you just have like publishing deadlines or how does how does the i mean my job is kind of weird right because i do this online i do projects like this as part of my job and then i also do stories yeah um and my stories tend to be more long-term tend to be more I mean, because I'm working with data, that's my that's my clay, right? I have to get that before I even start. To get data, you've got to get a story tip, generally, that, that leads you to say, okay, this is the data set that I need or the data sets that I need. Then you've got to wrap your hand around how is that data collected and maintained. Then you've got to put in a request. Then generally you have to work with, uh, you know, whoever the stakeholders are to get that data. Sometimes you have to wrestle with them about things like format. A lot of times in Nebraska, people try to give you a PDF and say, there you go, that's electronic data. And you'd say, no, 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 no. That's not electronic data. That's a goddamn PDF. And then we're able to find, once we've gone through all of that, and that can be a months-long process, then we can start doing some actual reporting. Yeah. You know, so that... I, I, generally, I'm doing that sort of stuff while also working on a couple of these sites, updating some of them. I do records request wrangling for a lot of people. I do data analysis. You know, the stolen gun things is, is a recent example. The homicide in North Omaha a week or two ago at, at a party. I think two or three people died as a result of that. We did some crime analysis based on based on that. On the neighborhood, yeah. That's, right. I've got, uh, yeah, we're... we're 35 minutes in and I've got a long list of your, t- <laughs> your tweets that I'm like, Oh wow, Matt, tell me more about this because I, I'm lacking so much context for your stuff. And you're, you're extremely connected to the nature of your job. And I think just the nature of your personality is that you know what's going on locally. And I'm so ignorant of what's going on locally. <laughs> I, don't I, that's I don't a good thing or any, bad thing for me, but all right. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm trying to become more educated about our governmental process, about our democracy or representative, representative republic or whatever it is that we have. Um, and you know, I, I see things from you on Twitter that I had no idea was going on at all. You know, I live halfway to Gretna, so, um, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm pretty far out there and I look at the, the, the crime maps and there's, you know, clustering of certain kinds of violence in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I, I look at, there's just, yeah, there's just an amazing diversity of life experience in this this country in general i think i mean i think if you're the the child of a billionaire and that that's one way to live and then if you're on welfare that's one way to live and it's just an amazing gulf of perspective that most people seem to just kind of hang out in their own bubble right. and talk to the people that are in their own bubble and 
Um, you know, I really appreciate the people I follow on Twitter, like yourself, who exposed me to something I had no idea was going on in my own backyard, like geographically close to me. That's, well, thank you. But, you know, I guess I would echo the same thing. I mean, we've got our reporter I'm thinking of right now is Erin Grace. She's a columnist for us, and she is constantly, you know, her worldview is just so much different than my own. She has an empathetic quality that I will just never have. She's able to tap into stories and people and stuff that, you know, these are people I never encounter. I don't hear about their stories. She spends a lot of time in North Omaha telling those stories about, you know, uh, parents wrestling with things with their kids. I've got kids, but I don't exactly hang with other parents or anything. You know, that's just not... I, and I guess that's sort of the power of journalism is to take us these... to give us a window into some... to show us just how big the world is. A window into something that we will never experience, never live through, don't have time or desire... But, you know, as members of society, we should probably at least know it's out there and be able to think about it. I think that's a, a good thing. Yeah, yeah. So you said your process sometimes starts with a tip. You get a tip about something going on. Is the Another one of your projects is uh, dataomaha.com slash prison. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a big scandal that happened in 2014, mm-hmm. if I correct me when I screw this up, because I've read through everything you've <laughs> tweeted, but, I, you know, my ignorance is profound. Um, so if you go to dataomaha.com slash prison, the, the headline is tracking, uh, tracking inmates released early from Nebraska prisons. How did this start? I'm most curious about, I mean, people should definitely read all of this content if they haven't already. Um, but how did, how did this start? How did you first hear about? So another benefit of working at the World Herald is I, I work with really smart people who are really good at their jobs. And one of them, his name is Todd Cooper. He just got on Twitter. I think it's called Cooper on Courts is his handle. He's totally worth the follow. He's awesome. Uh, he was walking around the courthouse one day, like he does. And the Douglas County Courthouse. The Douglas County Courthouse. Just, I mean, just honestly, at any job that I've ever had, the courts reporters are some of the coolest people. Todd is probably the coolest courts reporter that I've ever worked mm. with, too. So he's a god among men. Nice. Yeah, I did um, follow him on Twitter this morning. Yeah, he's And great. I retweeted your tweet about following him on Twitter. <laughs> so hopefully other people will. He, uh... We'll see how much he, he buys into it, but he could be really good. He's got a good personality. He's funny. He, he finds stories like this. He was walking around the courthouse, and he saw this prosecutor. You know, he knows her. He's worked with her. He talks to her every day, likely, uh, and she's upset. He says, Katie, what's wrong? Uh, and she says, man, there was just, you know, the, it was supposed to be a court hearing for a guy. I don't even remember what exactly he was complaining about, but he was supposed to have an appearance with the judge over closed-circuit television because he's in prison. So they go there, the prosecutors and everybody are in prison to, to, to have a hearing for the shooter who's in prison. And they're, you know, filing their papers and stuff, getting ready. And in he struts, this guy who should be in prison. And they are, you know, caught flat-footed. They didn't expect to see him here. Oh, he's, he's in plain be, clothes. He's in a suit and tie. Oh. He's not in a jumpsuit, you know, yeah. like you wear in prison. He's walking in with his girlfriend on his arm, not, you know in chains being walked up he is a free man he's a free man well, and, and and she you what, know. what was the prosecutor the prosecutor was supposed to be the, the judge what what was the court date about i don't remember what it, oh, it was okay, it was okay. some you know appeal of some sort it was but this is the, the prosecutor the prosecutor didn't expect to see the guy right and here he is right well, at least he showed up. That's good. Well, right. right. That's, <laughs> that was nice of him to come. And he dressed nice for it and everything. Yeah. Um, but that kind of led us down this rabbit hole. Of, yeah. Okay, what in the hell is this guy How doing How is that now? possible? Uh, and Todd, you know, again, he's a crack reporter. He kind of found out. He, he didn't find out what was going on necessarily, but he, he could at least write, this is wrong. This is not how it should be. And I, th- he, I think he wrote that story. But then he thought, God, I can't believe that good old Quentin Jackson is the only person that this happened to. Is this, this was this early was 2014 or when this are we? This would be May 2014, 2014. I want okay, yeah. to say. Yeah. April, maybe late April. Yeah. Um, I didn't see that story. It was a little story. It yeah. was a fun story, but it was just a little story. And he came to me and he said, okay, I, I don't know if you can do anything here, but, but I'm so, you know, this is, there are people like me in every newsroom around the country, and this is what we live for, is a person with a really good news tip who just needs to take it that extra step. 
and thank God he came to me and I was able to say, yeah, I, I can help with that. Um, what we did, what it boiled down to, one of the things that we saw with Quentin Jackson is that his, you know, uh, Nebraska prison system, to their credit, have a great website. They actually, their, their database where they track all their inmates, where they are, when they're supposed to get out, all this stuff, what they're in for, uh, their mugshots, it's usable, it's easy, it's findable, it's it's indexed on Google, it's, it's great. Um, and I maybe shouldn't say this, but it's got an immensely hackable URL. Like, it's very easy to scrape. Um, and so we could go there and we could, we pulled up Quentin Jackson's record on the, on the site and we could see his parole date, uh, was set for a year or two after his release date. So in other words, he was supposed to be released from prison, free and clear, and then a year or two later, be put on parole. That is not how this works. That is, that clearly isn't how this works. It doesn't even make logical sense. And the more we dug into it, the more we came to realize what was going on is he had what's called a man, this is going to get very in the weeds. I apologize. He no, had what's called ahead. a mandatory minimum sentence. The way, which is essentially an exclusion to the law of the land here, which is good time. So if you, Jay, you're using your pistol, you're out shooting people and you go to prison, right? Mm-hmm. You get sentenced, let's say you're not using a gun, actually, that's a bad example. You're just being a bad guy, and you got to go to prison for a year. Law of the land is good time. You you have a minimum sentence and a maximum sentence. The judge says, I sentence you to one to two years in prison, Jay. When you go to prison, that off the top gets cut in half. What that actually means is you're going to be in prison from six months at the minimum. At six months, you will become parole eligible. And 12 months at the maximum. So, in other words, half of what the judge assigns you to. Wait, I'm... Wait. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm already not understanding this. <laughs> Join the club. <laughs> Wait, so that that's across the board? Or that's, like, nonviolent? No, or that's across... That's... I mean, the exception is these mandatory minimums, which I'll get to, but first yeah, yeah. you got to understand this. The, the cutting in half. Now, there, there's good reasons for that. Or, I guess I shouldn't make that judgment. There are reasons for that. The reasons being... Uh, and, and the reason this was passed... This this law was on the books when Nebraska created a Department of Corrections. That's how long it's been around. And the reason is that once a person's in prison, they have no incentive to not just be stabbing people, right? Uh, or fighting people or anything like that because there's no... If I'm in prison for life, Well, if you're in prison for... Okay, stabbing is a bad example. But, hey, uh, get out of your cell. It's time to go to the yard. No. Well, what do you do at that point? There's no, there's nothing to keep these people in line. There is no incentive to be a stand-up prisoner. Oh. There's no reason that you should not be a complete ass while you're in prison, basically. Oh, so the idea is give them a 50% credit on their sentence. Yep. And then unless they, they play with up. that 50%. Well, unless they run out of that 50%. <clears throat> and then, and so now we can say, Jay, make your bed. No. All right. You just lost a week of good time. Until I run out of all that good time. Right. right. <laughs> but that's an incentive. Like, yeah, yeah. you can no, understand, understand why what they had in mind there. Right, right, right. Uh, fact so, of the matter. So that's all, so, so that's been that way for a long time in the state of since, Nebraska. Since we invented prisons. It's evolved over time. Yeah. But that actual, like the concept of good time being some portion of a judge's sentence has existed in Nebraska since, I think it was 1967 or something like that. Okay. Forever. Yeah. Oh, and the judges, so the judges are very well aware of this, but that's not their role. Their role is to say, hey, look, this is your sentence. The judges are very aware of this. And, and, you know, the judges, except in cases of mandatory minimums, have the benefit of, you know, we we trust them to handle this stuff. They know the sentencing law and they can say, all right, Jay, you shot a guy in the head. I want you to spend a year in prison. So I'm going to sentence you to two years in prison. They're not idiots. They're judges. They know how this works. They, They factor it in their sentencing. That's whether it's right or wrong, you know, whether it's clear to the average citizen, we can quibble over that. But judges know what's going on. Yeah. And I, and I receive uh, mailing letters uh, from an organization against mandatory minimums. I forget that specific acronym of this specific organization. Families Against Mandatory Minimums, I think hmm. it is, F-A-M-M. I'd, I'd have to look. Um, but, yeah, it, it seems to me that we should have juries and we should have judges <coughs> that need to hear all the evidence and then make a decision and that that is the decision 
that is actually implemented. It seems to me that's the way it should work. It, it makes me un- mandatory minimums in general make me uncomfortable. I don't mean to disreal your no, story. Mandatory minimums in general make me uncomfortable in that what we're saying is that a senator years ago gets to just blatant, just flat out decide things about a case that people spend six months or whatever learning about the case, right? They're in the room with the people and a senator years ago is overriding the decision-making process of that group of people, the jury and the judge. And so I'm, I'm not a fan of mandatory minimums in general. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the case against them. And and I'll devil's advocate here. I don't know that I actually believe either side. It's just the way it is. But the argument for mandatory minimums is, okay, you've got a white defendant, with a gun crime, and you got a black defendant with a gun crime. And if you leave it up to the jury and the judge, this isn't going to be equitable, right? They're going to look at that white kid who shot the gun at 18, and they're going to say, eh, we, all, we were all troublemakers at 18. They're going to look at the black kid who shot the gun at 18 and say, oh, my God, he's done. He can't come back from this. And so I sort of, I mean, again, I'm devil's advocating. I don't know that I buy that position, but I sort of understand the the reasoning behind that. Um, uh, yeah, I understand statistically when you look at the criminal justice system and you see vast discrepancies along racial lines or something. When you see this is a historical trend that 80%, I don't, you know, I'm just making numbers sure. up now, but 80% of, <coughs> of, of black men are accused and convicted, whereas 80% of white men aren't, et cetera, whatever it is. But isn't the system supposed to be that it's a jury of your peers, right? 13 people pulled from the community that hopefully are a cross-section of that actual community, and those people can actually decide. And the, the, I guess my question in my ignorance of this topic is, <laughs> how do we end up with those statistics if the people on the jury are truly representatives of the community I, serving I, them? I mean, our community is... I don't know. I can't answer that. I, I mean, our community... We live in Nebraska, right? So right. the statistics here are crazy. I mean, we're... <laughs> but, so I could totally understand how in such a segregated area like Nebraska that that might be more of a factor than it than it might be otherwise, depending on how you define the jury of your peers. You know, I don't, I don't know. Or maybe there's arguments about only people who aren't making much money can get, you know, in, get stuck in jury duty. Like if you <laughs> are smart enough or know a lawyer or whatever, you'll know what to say to get out of jury duty and huh. get excuse. I don't know. I've been making that. I up mean, too. there's, there's tons of, there's an entire cottage industry that just studies this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the, the, I, their outcomes almost universally are we've got, a, we, we are better than we used to be, but our system is still biased against right. poor people, uh, against minorities, yada, yada, yada. Um, so, so the prison scandal story is you discover that in this one case, this crazy thing has happened where, hey, he's released, and then he's got two years of vacation time, like a honeymoon period, and then he goes on parole, which makes but, no but sense But he wouldn't go on parole. I mean, the, He wouldn't go on parole? That's, that's the other trick of it. You, oh. you, so back to those sentences, you're given a minimum and a maximum sentence. Yeah. And the idea is once you reach your minimum sentence, yeah. you can be paroled if you've kept your nose clean in prison. Until you reach your maximum sentence. So you're back in the community, but you have to report to a parole officer until your sentence would be done. Oh. That's that's how it works. So if you've been released and then you have a parole date, yeah, that's not happening. You're already out. Oh. <laughs> you don't just start parole. There's no, there would be no end date. Okay. You know, because yeah. it's over when you're released and you were released back here. It just didn't make any sense. Oh, parole is always, parole always ends at the end of your maximum sentencing. At is that how that works? maximum sentence, oh, okay. yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right, now I'd need flowcharts and stuff. <laughs> understand what's yeah, going on. Yeah, it's hard with that. But, okay, so Cooper you, had to explain this to me a half dozen times. <laughs> I, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Yeah, well, ask him if I can ask him about it. <laughs> um, so, so you find one case, and then you find a website, and you can scrape the website. This is like the Douglas County Sheriff's or whatever uh, it is. This is the Nebraska Department, Department of Corrections, Corrections. Yeah, inmate okay. locator. Yeah, and so now you're seeing this trend of. What? Wait. So what's what's the problem? Because well, everyone knows the system works like this. So how does? So so how, so did, the pros, how did that prosecutor I, I not gotta, know? I got to get to the to the nut of it. Yeah. So that's how the system works. Everything's yeah. cut in half. Okay. Okay. Yep. Then we throw this monkey wrench of mandatory minimums. That system has existed since the seventies. In nineteen ninety five, ninety six, in nineteen ninety five, the legislature starts talking about mandatory minimums, and the way they craft them is 
these will be uh, an exception to the good time rule. This period of time that is your mandatory minimum cannot get cut in half. Not the bottom, not the top. It doesn't get cut in half. So now if you get if if you get a three year normal sentence, that's a year and a half, right? If you get a three year mandatory minimum sentence, that's three years. Oh. Okay. okay. Yeah. They 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 carved out an exception to the good time rule, to that cutting it in half yeah. system. Okay. Okay. This that's where they screwed the pooch. From the time that law was put into effect in nineteen ninety six, like July nineteen ninety six, they misinterpreted it. Okay. They never got it right. So so lay out for me the discrepancy between what the courts thought was happening, what, or sorry, what the legislatures thought was happening when they introduced this, and then what was actually happening on the ground. The courts thought this was happening, too. Everybody thought this was happening. Uh, what what they thought was happening is... Except you were the only person reading their website to tell them that that's get, not what's well, happening. Well, <laughs> that's, that's another funny Thanks, Matt, part of this. reading that so, website. So... <laughs> and I really apologize. It's so confusing. It's just the way it is. I guess it's not my fault. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're sentenced. Okay. I shoot you in the head. Okay. I'm going to get a three year mandatory minimum. Yeah. And then I'm going to get another two years for something else for being a felon in possession of a weapon or, or something like that. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, the way so far, the way, okay. The way it should work is I serve those three years. Yep. And then I, and then good time applies to the second two. So okay. I serve half of that. So I'm at four years, right? Okay. Yeah. What was actually happening is the prisons were saying, okay, five years. Uh, they got to serve the minimum. There we go. Three years. That's what was happening. And you're done. And you're done. You're out. They okay. were saying, because that's greater than half the total sentence, that's all you have to serve. They weren't, you know, the right way is you serve that and then half the remaining. They were just taking the total, cutting it in half. And if your mandatory minimum was greater than half, you're done. You're free and clear. And three to five years is kind of the, you know, best example I can give you. Mm-hmm. Because so, one of the, uh, you know, that's kind of a best case scenario. One of the biggest uh, mandatory minimum crimes is habitual criminal. Once you, It's a three strikes and you're out rule for Nebraska. Once you've been in prison three times or once you've been in prison twice and you have another felony that you're in court for, 10 years, mandatory minimum, no good time. Mm-hmm. So when that was getting misinterpreted, we were having these five-year swings in sentences. Wait, that that ten-year mandatory minimum, no good time, co- it, convicted person right. was getting out in five. They or would, that was sometimes five. Oh, but sometimes they would have a ten with another, you know, eight, nine, ten on the on the back end. Yeah, and so the result was, well, you're out in ten. Okay, so let me rather than twenty. So I'm a computer programmer. I get I get complicated requirements all the time from my boss. Right, my boss hands me this thing and they say, "Hey, implement this." And I go, "Okay." And I I go in there and I write the algorithm and I'm like, "Boom, there you go." Right. And so the computer, the mainframe now, will kick out a date when the Department of Corrections guy (laughs) is supposed to open the door and let me out. Right. Yeah. So where was so my understanding from your from following you on Twitter and reading the articles in the Omaha World Herald is that even when it was pointed out. That the the legislation um, was not being followed by the Department of Corrections, that the Department of Corrections was not exactly forthcoming in their in their analysis and admittance that they weren't following the law. Is that what well, happened? Well, it depends. It depends which time it was pointed out. In two thousand two, there was a Supreme Court case that said. Yeah, guys, this is how math works. You're doing it wrong. Nebraska Supreme Court. Nebraska Supreme Court told said, them. Hey, your algorithm is implemented incorrectly. Some some joker of a, an inmate had a lawsuit that said, I don't even remember exactly what it said. It was kind of absurd. It said, you know, my mandatory minimum should be cut in half or something. I mean, the actual nuts and bolts of what he asked weren't, aren't germane. Uh, but the Supreme Court said, yeah, no, 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 here's how it works. You've got a mandatory sentence. That has to be served in full, and then half of what's remaining. They laid it out. Uh, prison looked at that and said, yeah, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. 2013. Wait, wait. They, <laughs> but they didn't tell anybody that. They just were no. like, ah, screw it. No. 2000, I'm sorry, 2011, 2013, I don't remember the exact date. There was another decision called Castillas. Uh, it's exactly what we're talking about here. It was a mandatory minimum, something on top, and then the court lays out in no uncertain terms. Look, this is how it works. We talked about this back in 2002, guys. This is how you're supposed to do it. And they have the ruling, uh, and prison looks at it, 
and this is what kind of the crux of our reporting this summer was, what happened at that point once you have the Castillas ruling. The first one was, you know, there were maybe, a, you could argue there was a little question to it. I don't buy that, but okay. Uh, Castillas was very clear. Um, and what happened is all the prison officials looked at it. Uh, the lawyer, they, they forwarded it to the prison lawyer. The prison lawyer didn't read it, he claims. The records clerk, <laughs> who, who, who is a former, I don't, I don't know if he was a former food worker or a former prison guard, uh. but like that's his background. He asked his employee of 50 years below him, hey, are we doing this? Should we do this? And she says, no, we shouldn't do this. It's not fair to the inmates. And you have these emails. We have these emails. Yeah. <laughs> she emails a lawyer with the, I mean, it's just a, a disaster and a failure to communicate ultimately as what happens is the record keeping office that has been doing it this wrong way for 20 years scrambles to defend their wrong way. There are meetings between, you know, prison officials. The lawyer just doesn't read the decision. Uh, and ultimately they just wind up saying, yeah, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing until someone tells us specifically to stop. Because the Supreme Court saying here's how prisons should do things apparently isn't direct enough. <laughs> they want somebody to intervene above and beyond that to tell them. Above and beyond the Supreme Court. Right. Who is, who is. <laughs> I mean, what do you want? A it's Supreme Obama's Court? <laughs> like Judge Hefekin or whatever his name is to wander down and say, hey, guys. <laughs> wow. So. You know, that that was really how we spent our summer. I mean, it, right. it, and what was so fun about this is it kept evolving. And at every possible step, we were able to kind of fact check what they were saying. I mean, uh, <clears throat> we put together a list of 200 people that we could verify for our first story. <clears throat> uh, within a couple of weeks, they said, geez, actually, it's 750 prisoners affected by this thing. Wow. Uh Oh, the, the Department of Corrections said that? or Yeah. So it's the 171 plus 569. Yeah. Uh, then from there it was, okay, what do we do about all the people, the 171, who are out on the streets? Yeah. And there was this manhunt and all this crazy stuff happened. Wait, but if I if I was released, that was not my fault, right? I mean, they they told me I was done, so I went home. So that's the, the that's issue legit, that we continue right? to wrestle with. Yeah. I mean, right now there are court cases being fought about this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'd be pissed. <laughs> if you let me out, you let me out. Right. Well, and there was a guy that I talked to. His name was Johnny Davis, um, who, when I did my analysis, I didn't find Johnny Davis. I didn't. That was not a name I knew. Your analysis is you're scraping their website and then writing little Mathing programs. their numbers. To, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and <laughs> right? That's, that's <laughs> funny. That's, that's uh, awesome. But Johnny Davis writes us a letter to say, this is crap. I'm back in prison. We interview him. <laughs> along with some other inmates. And then we walk out and the, the woman that, a uh, fellow reporter that was in there with me is looking at our, our list that we put together of everybody. And she says, Johnny Davis isn't on our list. And, and yet here he is. He's been dragged back to prison. And so we write a story basically saying that, saying, what's going on here? Turns out Johnny Davis was done right. He shouldn't have been brought back to prison yet. He had to be dragged back to the diagnostic and evaluation center which is at 300% of capacity, so 50-something-year-old man, sleep on a plastic cot on the floor for two months because they screwed up their cleanup of the original screw-up. So that was just one example. We found... So uh, Johnny Davis got drugged back into the system when he wasn't even supposed to be back into the system. Right. It's not like he did a prison break. They let him out. They it's, let him out. They said, go They home. signed his papers. They right. said, go with God. He kept. He did not... Get a, so much of the speeding ticket. And he, he spent two, two years, months, two months back in the system at the ridiculous. I mean, it might be more than three hundred percent. It might be like five hundred percent. This place is crowded. Wow, unbelievably crowded. Is that legal? I mean, how does that work? That I mean, no, it's not legal. But we need somebody to come tell us directly, right? I mean, that is a problem that we're wrestling with. Seriously, <sighs> as, and as Nebraska taxpayers, it should freak us out. The feds went to California a couple years ago and said. You can't just pile people on top of each other and this is cruel and inhumane. Yeah. And they said, get your act together. And as a result, California had to release a whole bunch of people. Yeah. We're, and pay a bunch of money. Yeah. You know, we're right there. We're at 160% of capacity. Emergency is 140% of capacity. The feds can come in. All they're waiting for is a lawsuit from an inmate. That is all they need. Hmm. And then they can intervene and make us spend a whole bunch of money. It's a serious deal. It's a giant problem we have to wrestle with. This is the second largest state agency. 
They've got four or 5,000 employees, the second biggest budget in the state, millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, and it's uh, it's a, it needs to be fixed. Well, it's up to our Nebraska legislature, right, our representatives in Lincoln, to to budget the money if we want all these people in prison. Or change the we laws. we got to pay for it. Change or the change laws. the laws to stack them like cordwood? What do you mean? Well, no. Change, uh, you know, I haven't analyzed this as much as I should, so I'm kind of shooting at the hip here. But <laughs> yeah. one of the mandatory minimum sentences is if you're a sex offender and you fail to register. So oh, okay. last year you flashed somebody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was bad. You shouldn't have done that. Uh, now you're out on the street uh, and you forget to file your paperwork that says where you live. You have to go to prison for six months. There is no wiggle room. That's, I mean, I don't know. That that's that's a, a law that was passed within the past ten years or so here. Yeah. And as we were going through this, so many of these guys were that. So many of these guys were people who just forgot to fill out their paperwork, and they have to go to prison. Maybe that's not necessary. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, they're sex offenders. That's not good. But we have this serious crowding problem, and those are kind of the decisions you have to make to deal with it. Maybe we don't need a mandatory minimum associated with drugs. Maybe we put them in a diversion program. That would help. I think 20% of the people in prison are there for drugs. Um, you know, those sorts of things are, are other possible solutions we could be dealing with at the legislative level. Oh, vote for me and I'll legalize drugs. <laughs> I'll let all those people, I'll, I'll let all the nonviolent drug offenders out. So Sure. That'll, all right. You, there do we I go. have your vote? You're kicking off your campaign. I have your vote? Here now. Sure. <laughs> sure. He just wants the story as my campaign goes up in flames. <laughs> well, once it comes out that you flashed people on the highway last year, <laughs> that it, I did? it's over. Yeah, you just can't decided. prove that. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, DataOmaha.com slash prison was the story, the, the system we were talking about just now. Um, so when people go there, they'll see all the photos and statistics of all of these individuals, kind of like a, a Facebook sort of thing. <laughs> um, and the, the bottom, I mean, the, one of the taglines here is that 2,458 collective years re-added to people's sentences. Right. So over 2,400 years of time that their trial and their judge and their juries said, hey, you need to be in prison for what you did. 2,400 of them, 2,400 years of that because <laughs> of your investigation, right? And other people yeah. at the World Heritage. I assume yeah. there were lots of people involved. Yeah. Um, have been re-added. Now, now how, so how does that work? If they released me and I'm like, how do I know that there's a warrant out for my re-arrest? How does that, I don't even know well, how that that was works. all the fun stuff over the, fun is the wrong word, but that was the interesting stuff over the summer to watch happen. You know, rounding up prisoners you let out accidentally is not exactly a normal thing that government does, right? Yeah. Do they so they didn't know what was going on. Postcard or a phone call or what? They went and rounded they, them up. Like they had the well, state patrol. they just patrol. show up at my door and yeah. say, hey. Yeah, they, they would issue warrants. And there was some weird language in the warrants, you know, because it's not like you're wanted on a crime. There, I, I don't remember exactly what the warrants said, but there was some goofy language in the warrants. State Patrol went out and they got these guys. Wow. Uh, parole agents called up their parolees and said, you got to report here by one. you got to go back to prison. But if they were free and clear, they weren't even on parole. So they could have left the state, right? Some they of them were on parole. Some of them wherever. were free and clear. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and, yeah, it was a, it was a shit show. Wow. Um, are some of them out of the country at this point? Are some of them in Belize? Because I'd be in Belize. In our analysis, we found 171 released early, and about a dozen, two dozen of those were illegal immigrants. You know, they were ICE. They, they've been deported. Oh, so okay. So they're gone. I don't know if anyone who was here got wind that they were out early and then left. Yeah, I, I mean, if I'm reading the Omaha World Herald, <laughs> right? <laughs> so this is why everyone should subscribe. There you go. There's your plug. <laughs> to the... Excellent. Well, maybe maybe they can throw me some uh, <laughs> some money for advertising or something. Uh, wow, that's okay. So that's dataomaha.com slash prison. Yeah, that was a hell of a project. Just amazing. Yeah. So um, I've got a meeting. I've got to jump on in like twenty five minutes. All right. So maybe one more. So I don't know if there's any way we can get through this or not, but that. Uh, the next thing on my little list of notes here that will be on the show notes if people go to the website for the podcast uh, was Legislative Bill 432. Yeah. So, you know, this is one of the mornings that, you know, I'm on Twitter and I'm scrolling through my feed of, you know, cat pictures and videos <laughs> and 
you know, <laughs> uh, and I, I'm flipping through this stuff, and here's a quote from your tweet. If you picture me reading this bill with a thoughtful face, you are incorrect. It makes me livid. This is Legislative Bill 432 a few weeks ago. Which is, by the way, DOA. This thing is dead, dead, dead. Yeah. Because it's crap. Yeah. So, true confessions time. This stuff just makes my head spin. <laughs> legal legal stuff just drives me batty. Um, you know, I'm a computer programmer. I like my ones and zeros. I like things not being ambiguous. I get, you know, upset about people being a, a, a alleged suspects. <laughs> you know, this kind of thing <laughs> drives me crazy. So here, you know, we have, I, I just printed out these two copies of this legislative bill 432 and i assume you're way better at reading these things and understanding what the hell they mean well um i mean i honestly i i too have become more of a program person than a word person over the years and what i find what i find somewhat comforting in this stuff is it's technical it's technical language this isn't flowery prose this is technical language meant to be interpreted by the books by the letter if you're confused about something you go look up the Literally, the definition in the dictionary. You know, that's a that's a legal move that lawyers use. Um, so, you know, so I can sort of get behind this stuff and how it works and, and and what's going on here. So the the intent of this bill, as I understand the the kerfuffle um, and the, <laughs> the withdrawal of this bill, eventually, the the intent of this bill, I think, was claimed to be, hey, that we're going to simplify the code. That a lot of this language is is unnecessary and redundant. We're just trying to make the law easier to understand. Sure. And we're not trying. You, you don't buy that? No, I don't buy that at all. Oh, really? I don't. See, buy that I read at this all. and I'm like, dear God, we're getting rid of whole paragraphs of crap that doesn't make any no. sense. I mean, look what's happening here. What? Yeah. Uh, so now we're staring at paper. This makes a great audio podcast, uh, by the way. Uh, so, <laughs> unless we we say it can't happen, other word. Uh, uh, Elsewhere in the law, all citizens of this state and all other persons interested in examination of public records are empowered and authorized to, uh, it used to say, examine those records, make copies using their own equipment, uh, free of charge during the hours the offices are open. You know, that makes sense. That's the law we have currently on the books. That's good. That says you can go to the courthouse and say, I need to see my, my record, and they will give it. They have to give it to you because they're open. And you can make, you can certainly read it. You can take notes. You can make copies. That's how the law works now. Uh, what they, and then later it says, um, you can make your own, you know, it, it says again, you can make your own copies or you can request copies of things. And the language, and, and they take that out yeah. and they add this language that says, uh, copies made by the custodian of the public record. This is what they're adding now may be provided in electronic or print format at the option of the custodian. Okay, you just completely gutted any ability for anyone to keep tabs on you. You have basically said, we're never going to give you data. We're just going to print out a database and give it to you and say, here, have fun, chump. That's oh, what they did. And that, that, you know, this is my life. This is what I do. I request data from governments that they're they're obtaining and creating on our behalf as taxpayers. As they're they're doing it as databases, not as paper, mm-hmm. and they're doing that for a reason. You're a programmer. So Data has power that paper doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Duh. If this, so your, and, and you know far better than I do, had this law passed, you believe your job at, at theydomaha.com, for example, would get a lot harder. Because, oh my god! Because the the people who are paid to uh, respond to freedom of information requests, etc would say, oh, look, it's more convenient for me to just charge you $200 for, you know, a 12-inch stack of paper, <laughs> right? Right. And send that job to Kinko's or whatever just so I don't have to do with it, and that you would lose your ability to get the information in the electronic format that's more consumable. Exactly. Yeah, okay. I mean, they basically eliminated data as a public record here. Okay. They said... Yes, the information contained within that data is public. You still get to see your court record, but you have no right to see it as a database. You only have the right to see it printed out on paper. Yeah. Which, you know, for analysis purposes, that is useless. So, so I, yeah, I, I totally <laughs> agree with. So my my stance on uh, this stuff is that if if it's taxpayer dollars, 
then it should all be open. It should all be public unless it, the, these records are sealed. So like we're another one of my interviews, hopefully for the, for the podcast is the Friedman versus steel case. That's been in yeah, court. Great. And I, I spent um, some time uh, two weeks ago, Sunday, I think uh, at, at that last court date. Um, so ho- hopefully I'll, I'll get to talk to Bruce about that. Um, but uh, it, it's interesting as I, as I read this, I, I think it does protect paper people uh, well, right? <laughs> but I totally agree with you that it does not protect electronic <laughs> folks that would rather do actual data analysis and right. know. And, and, you know, it's 2015. We shouldn't be exempting data as a public record. If anything, we are moving more towards data being the public record. This is backwards. This is wrong. This is not how it works at all. If you want people to be able to have a window into how, how government operates, getting that data, being able to analyze it and total things and some things, you know, that's that's how you do it, not by handing them a piece of paper. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I need to get so much better about being able to read legal uh, jargon and understand <laughs> the implications of how that will actually turn into the uh, meat space, right? The, the actual, when I, <laughs> when I walk into a room and say, Hey, we're all friends here. We're all on the same side. Give me this stuff. And, but they're not, especially if they're disincentivized to give me that stuff. And they will only give me that stuff if the force of law mandates that they do right. so. Right. And so you end up in this, this crazy, unfortunate space in the legal system where you're, everything's a hundred percent adversarial and it's, it's unfortunate, but it's better, better than, Chaos. And my, my first, uh, my first podcast was about anarcho-capitalism. So I had an anarchist that I interviewed. Oh, I don't cool. know if you've listened to that or not, but <laughs> that's an amazing conversation. Uh, so I, I almost used the word anarchy there, but I, <laughs> I've now been better educated. So I do not use the word anarchy when I talk about chaos. Well, look so, at you. Not necessarily. Uh, <laughs> we already have a problem with governments. I mean, the way that they misinterpret or subvert the records law is astonishing and it it makes me mad that i can't write a story about it every time because not enough people care because i think it's important uh you know we like i said we just did this blanket salaries request yesterday we've gotten two public information officers public paid employees who said no no no, you can't just file an open records request under the law you have to fill out this goofy form that we have online what the, there's no form in the law i get to send you a letter and ask for what i want and you got to give it to me Right. That is what we've come up with as a society. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, so that's granted a very minimum way, but that's not following the letter of the law. The PDF thing, when I ask for salaries, uh, you know, data related to salaries, they will often take a spreadsheet, convert it to a PDF, and then give me that PDF. No, that's not how this works either. Yeah. I want data, not a PDF. You know, and it just makes... It's not impossible, but it makes my job harder. It adds uh, the opportunity for error, which is my kryptonite. Yeah. These people are out to subvert this thing anyway. It needs to be as clear as possible, and I think everybody should be on board with that. Yeah. Wow. Off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with me this morning. Yeah, this and is I, fun. I mean, if, if you'll let me, I'll be interviewing you all the time about all kinds <laughs> of crazy stuff on Twitter. So I really appreciate you taking a chunk out of your morning and uh thanks again cool all right thanks a lot